Okay, wait, wait, just a second. I got to plug this. Yow! It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 144, April 26th, 2009. A recent story on the BBC reported that Virgin Media will beat British Telecom to the marketplace with 100 megabits per second broadband speed. Virgin plans to start rolling out its fiber network next year and will complete the process by 2012. Until then, the poor Brits will just have to make do with a top speed of 50 megabits per second. Make do? Every time I begin to feel good about my 6 megabits per second download speed, I run across a story about a service that's more than 8 times faster than what I have. In Japan, 60 megabits per second service is available today, and it costs about what I pay for a far slower service. Why is this? In part, it's because the Federal Communications has for nearly a decade failed to do what it's supposed to do. Instead of promoting technology, the FCC was in a continuous tizzy about the occasional dirty word or costume malfunction. That's not the sole cause of the problem, though. In part, it's simply because the United States is so large. The CIA Factbook lists the five largest countries in the world by landmass, Russia, Canada, the U.S., China, and Brazil. Sorting the list for the largest countries by population, a different picture emerges, China, India, the U.S., Indonesia, and Brazil. But neither of these views provides a clear picture that shows why high-speed Internet and high-speed cellular service takes so long to build out here compared to places such as Japan. The real story, I think, is population density. And sorting the list that way produces a far different picture. This time I'll list the top ten countries because a few in the top ten are so small that they can be ignored, at least for the purposes of this story. Macau, Monaco, Hong Kong, Singapore, Gibraltar, Malta, Bermuda, Maldives, Bahrain, and Bangladesh. Take Hong Kong, for example, number three on the list. Hong Kong Broadband Network Limited reaches more than 90% of homes in Hong Kong, and its slow speed is 25 megabits per second. Speeds up to 1,000 megabits per second are available. Even a country that we in the West think of as poor, Bangladesh, has Internet service providers that have download speeds of just under 1 megabits per second. You might be wondering where the U.S. is on that list in terms of population density. We're down at number 175. Clearly, population density isn't the entire story. A poor nation with a high population density isn't going to see high-speed Internet anytime soon. But a reasonably prosperous nation that has a relatively high population density would be ideal to support widespread high-speed service. Fiber is costly to deploy, and if the population density hovers around two people per square mile, as it does in Mongolia, there's little incentive to install fiber. On the other hand, Taiwan with 600-plus people per square mile, or South Korea with 490 people per square mile, Japan with 336 people per square mile, 
Great Britain and Germany, each around 240 people per square mile, and Switzerland, 180 people per square mile, have both the investment capital and the population density to support a fast build-out. China is far higher on the list than the United States, too, 76th, with a density of just over 130 people per square mile, compared to the U.S., as I said, in 175th place, with a density hovering around 30. Now, it's true that about 80% of us live in metro areas with far more than 30 people per square mile. And it's unlikely that someone who lives on Beer Can Alley, about five miles north of Wolf Point, Montana, expects high-speed Internet service anytime soon. You might be wondering about the source of all those wonderful spams that offer to send you millions of dollars in cash. Well, Nigeria, 73rd by population density, with about 141 people per square mile. Those who can afford Internet access in Nigeria are largely limited, though, to speeds of 300 to 500 kilobits per second, according to the speed test net. That's still six to ten times the speed of modem-based Internet service in the U.S. And speaking of Beer Can Alley... And I just happen to like the name of the road. It actually appears that nobody lives on Beer Can Alley, and it is a real road. Google Maps shows nothing more than farm fields north and south of Beer Can Alley. But somebody might build a house there someday, so I thought I'd talk about it. If you live in northeast Montana or just about anywhere else in the country, you can have high-speed Internet access if you're willing to use a satellite service. I took a look at HughesNet Satellite. The company has six tiers of service, starting with the least expensive service, Home, offering a 1 megabit per second downstream, 128 kilobits per second upstream for about $60 a month. So that's about 20 times the speed of a modem connection for about three times the cost of modem service. Next is Pro Service with 1.2 megabits per second downstream, 200 kilobits per second upstream for 70 bucks a month. Pro Plus goes up to 1.6 megabits downstream for $80 a month. The Elite Service gives you 2 megabits per second downstream, but that's up to $120 a month. And if you go all the way up to Elite Premium, 5 megabits per second downstream, 300 kilobits per second upstream, $350 a month. These are speeds that cable or DSL subscribers would pay, oh, perhaps $40 to $60 a month for. In short, there are no easy solutions. For those who live in or near to cities where houses are close together, fiber could be built out relatively fast. In many cases, fiber is already in the neighborhood. All that's needed is the time, money, and effort to run fiber from a utility pole to and through your house. And as for the guy who might someday build a house on Beer Can Alley, don't hold your breath. If you'd like to see the spreadsheet I use to compare land mass, population, and population density, you can download it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. <laughs> If Linux is the answer, what was the question? I said last week that Linux can't win the fight for the desktop. I mentioned, among other things, a lack of Linux administrators in the corporate world, fear of the unknown, and a general inability to run Windows applications. During a week of vacation in March, I was able to work for long periods on several days with my primary computer running Linux. I still can't realistically see a time when Linux will be king of the desktop, But I know for certain that Linux does most of the tasks needed by a large number of computer users. Maybe it's time to take a look at some of the Linux advantages. First is the cost advantage. Linux is free. 
Part of the cost of a computer is the operating system, and Windows adds about $200 to the cost of the hardware. That's not a lot if you're buying a high-end computer, but it's quite a bit if you're looking for a computer in the sub-$500 range. Eliminating the cost of the operating system would allow the buyer to reduce the price or to obtain better hardware at the same cost. And yes, there is a performance advantage. Linux can generally do more with less hardware. It will happily use large amounts of memory and high-power video cards if you provide them. But Linux manages to get along better than Windows does on low-power machines. I hear that Windows 7 will address some of those problems. And you'll probably also find that Linux starts and shuts down faster, probably a lot faster, than Windows. There is a reliability advantage. Recently, when Windows lost track of both DVD drives in my computer, I was able to determine the problem was not a hardware failure by booting Linux and allowing it to confirm that the drives were working. More about that in just a bit. The problem turned out to be a registry issue. Linux doesn't store all of the important configuration information in a single gigantic and easily corrupted file the way Windows does. There is a security advantage, at least sometimes. Some Linux distributions take security more seriously than others, but generally speaking, Linux and Unix machines are more secure than Windows. Vista's security is good, although cumbersome, and Windows 7 will probably be better yet. Still, because Linux is based on Unix, the directory structure was designed from the beginning with security in mind. There is a robustness advantage. I mentioned the Windows registry, which is one of the reasons that performance degrades over time when outdated entries build up. Windows users who routinely add and remove software usually need to reinstall the operating system, at least occasionally. I had to do that a couple of weeks ago. This is rarely the case with Linux. There is a disk advantage. Because of the way Windows writes to hard drives, files become fragmented. This reduces performance, and the only solution is to run a defragmenter program. Linux takes a different approach to writing files, and as a result, fragmentation is far less likely to occur until the disk drive itself is nearly full. There is a sharing advantage. It's a common misconception that Linux can't write to Windows NTFS volumes. It can. As I was writing this report in a text editor under Linux, I saved the document to a directory on an NTFS volume on drive D. Linux doesn't use drive letter designations, but it can mount the volume as well as read and write files. I wouldn't need that, of course, if the computer had only Linux installed, but it can share files with Windows. And there is a one-stop shopping advantage. When you're looking for an application, and particularly if you're using one of the more consumer-oriented distributions, adding an application is as easy as selecting Add Programs from a menu and picking the applications you want from a list that's divided into categories, utilities, programming, office tools, games, and things like that. Select as few or as many as you want and tell Linux to start. The operating system locates all of the applications, downloads them, installs them, sets them up on the menu. It really doesn't get any easier than this. And finally, there is an updating advantage. Similar to the previous point, updating is a snap. In fact, this very week, the Ubuntu distribution of Linux was updated, and the process was extremely 
easy. If you use the distributions installer, it will track updates to applications as well as updates to the operating system. When you log on, you'll be notified that there are updates either to applications or to the operating system. Obtaining them consists of a single click that instructs the operator to get to work, along with typing the password required for the administrator tasks. Now, for every advantage, there's probably a disadvantage. But I covered those in the other article last week. If you need a computer but you don't require any Windows-specific or Mac-specific applications, maybe it's time for you to take a look at Linux. I mentioned the missing DVD drives a bit ago. Sometimes things aren't where you left them. If I leave a cat on the bed, there's probably a pretty good chance that he'll still be there when I return, at least unless he suspects that he might be able to obtain food or catnip. And even then, he'll probably return. I'm fairly good about remembering where I put my glasses or my car keys, but sometimes I do have to call the cell phone to find out where it is. DVD drives, on the other hand, are installed in the computer, and as far as I'm concerned, they should always be there. One day they weren't. Well, physically they were there. I could see them, but Windows couldn't. That made using them just a little bit difficult. The first step was both easy and obvious. Power connectors are notorious for becoming detached. So I pressed the button that opens the tray on each drive. Both of them opened. Well, they're getting power. The data cable could have become loose, but data cables are pretty firmly attached. And besides, two of them would have to come unplugged at the same time. Eh, possible. Not worth opening the case for, at least not just yet. I plugged in an external USB DVD drive, but the USB device detector had a problem with it, too. The Windows device manager showed the USB drive and the two internal drives as having problems. Well, this should be an easy fix. The usual procedure is to delete the devices and then either restart the computer or have the device manager scan for new devices. Nothing doing. No matter what I did, the two DVD drives simply weren't present. It could be the result of a hardware problem. Both DVD drives should use the same part of the main board, so the problem could be there. But I thought I'd try performing a system restore to see if that would resolve the problem. After all, both drives had been working less than 24 hours earlier. As is usually the case with Windows System Restore, the process acted as if it would work, but ultimately failed. So I still don't know if I'm looking for a hardware problem or a software problem. This is a dual boot machine, so I thought I'd start Linux and see what it could see. That way I could conclusively rule out either hardware or software... If Linux sees the drives, the problem would be a Windows issue. If Linux could not see the drives, the problem would be, obviously, hardware. Well, Linux could see both drives, and it could play a DVD movie. So that meant the problem, not too surprisingly, was Windows, and probably the registry. The registry is nearly 180 megabytes on my computer. There's no way I could ever hope to scroll through that entire mess line by line with any hope of finding the problem. So I turned to Google. That is my usual procedure, even if I think it's a Windows problem. Instead of searching Microsoft's Knowledge Base, I start with Google. Knowledge Base articles all are indexed and show up on Google, but often I'll find a better description of the problem and possible resolutions elsewhere. About halfway down the first page of results, there was a Microsoft Knowledge Base article that looked pretty promising. It told me that I needed to find an entry in the registry, delete it, and restart the computer. The good news is that Microsoft knows about this problem, even if I've never heard of it. I found the registry subkey in question, deleted the entries, and when I restarted the computer, the DVD drives were home again. 
My point is that this isn't, as a friend of mine likes to say, rocket surgery. The first thing to do is simply to remain calm. Ask anybody who's been trained by the Red Cross what the first order of business is, and you'll probably be told that you should be part of the solution, not the problem. I could have yanked off the side of the case and started moving wires around. At best, that would have produced no change. I could have decided the only solution would be to reinstall Windows. That would have solved the problem, but at the cost of several days of lost productivity. Think things through. Use resources available to you. Being able to boot the system to Linux and see the drives told me that I would have been pretty foolish to have cracked open the case. Once I knew the problem was related entirely to Windows, Google became my ally. But sometimes Google search can lead you to something that's almost like what you're experiencing. There's a great deal of temptation to do something, anything, to fix the problem. For those of us who are not terribly patient, this is a dangerous juncture. Before taking action to solve a problem, it's a good idea to make sure the problem you're solving is the one that has presented itself. If you don't, you're in danger of creating a solution that only makes the problem worse. In short circuits, things haven't been too bright for Sun lately. The company that pioneered graphics-intensive terminals has seen basic desktop computers' power increase to the point where machines costing a small fraction of a Sun workstation could perform virtually the same tasks. IBM had considered acquiring Sun, but antitrust concerns got in the way. So now Sun will be acquired by Oracle, and I'm still trying to figure out who wins and who loses. For that reason, any commentary will have to wait for a later time, but I can at least talk about the acquisition itself. Maybe just one comment. I'm sorry to see Scott McNeely's company gobbled up by Larry Ellison's Oracle. Oracle will be acquiring Sun for $7.4 billion. It was back in 1982 when four Silicon Valley wizards created a new class of inexpensive workstations that could do what once required mainframe machines or at least mini-computers. But the relentless march of hardware turned today's desktop systems into yesterday's supercomputers. The name Sun, by the way, was a nod to the Stanford University Network, founded by McNeely and two other Stanford grad students and UC Berkeley software engineer Bill Joy, a Unix guru. Sun workstations were able to create graphics that, until then, had required much more powerful systems. Sun servers powered much of the dot-com boom of the late 1990s, but the dot-com crash was essentially the end of the company's prominence. In recent years, Sun acquired the German Star Division's office suite and renamed it Star Suite. Development of Star Suite is now an open-source project known as OpenOffice. Sun released the source code on condition that it could use improvements developed by the open-source community in Star Office. McNeely remained chairman in 2006 when Jonathan Schwartz became Sun's CEO. Sun and IBM, as I noted, had discussed a merger for several months, but IBM called off the chase, and that gave the opening to Oracle. If you are one of those people who considers Bill Gates is always wrong, I have to tell you that he has been demonstrably correct. For years, Gates said that Microsoft could not continue its record quarter-over-quarter growth. But for 23 years, Microsoft continued to record gains. For the first time, sales have dropped year over year. Revenue fell 6% in the quarter ending March 31st, and Microsoft failed to meet analysts' estimates. The company was expected to earn $0.39 per share, but the final results were $3.0 billion of net income, which is $0.33 a share. 
year-over-year profits dropped from $4.4 billion last year. The personal computer industry has been hit hard by the recession. Business and home purchases are down sharply. Making things worse is a decision by a lot of people to wait until Windows 7 is released. Intel says it expects sales to increase soon. If so, that would mean gains for Microsoft. Intel says it has begun to see larger orders from manufacturers, so there are indications that the situation, at least in the computer industry, might be ready to improve. If you are an Ubuntu Linux fan, you already know this. Version 9.04 of Ubuntu Linux was released this week as an update to version 8.10. Canonical released version 9.04 on Thursday, April 23rd, and I was writing this report as the 618 megabyte update was downloading. That's right, 618 megabytes. In all, 10 packages will be removed, 104 will be installed, 993 will be updated, and it's all automatic. The expected download time was shown as just shy of two hours, but the actual time was closer to five. Part of this was because the Ubuntu FTP servers were clearly swamped on the first day available to download the new version. But I also had in process a two-gigabyte backup sending files to Carbonite. Simultaneous big uploads and big downloads just don't work together very well. When I shut down the Carbonite process, the download speed increased a bit to about 80 kilobytes per second, which is clearly the result of an overload on the canonical side. I could easily handle 10 times that speed, and that would reduce the download time to the expected two hours. The new release is available for netbook computers. It contains a preview edition of Eucalyptus, which is an open-source project from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Eucalyptus makes it possible for organizations to build their own in-house Amazon-like EC2 compute clouds. Ubuntu 9.04 can work acceptably in both desktop and server roles, but it is far less robust as a server operating system than as a desktop operating system. If you are concerned about the breakneck speed of Ubuntu releases, after all, 8.10 was released just six months ago, and 9.10 will be out in just six months from now, well, you could consider sticking with 8.04, which comes with long-term support. But if you like being up with all the latest, go ahead. Get 9.04. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.